All right. If you would, reach down in your pew and uh, grab your seat belt and buckle up. <laughs> this is going to be a little bit different today. Um, I don't know. This, this might be a hybrid uh, sermon, one part sermon, one part, uh, uh, I don't know, classroom lecture or something like that. But, but let me just ask you, uh, as much as you're able to set your mind to be engaged, engaged in this hour. You know, put away whatever distractions. Uh, we're going to open up our Bibles, but, but most of all, I, I just want to invite you to open up your hearts, your minds, your eyes this morning, because the things that we're going to talk about today, I don't know that there's anything more important. I don't know that there's anything more essential and central to the biblical message and, uh, but I'm going to throw a lot at you today. Ezra chapter 3 is where we've been. And, uh, you know, we're, we're walking through the story of the return of the Jewish people. They have been cast out, if you will, by God to a land of exile there in Babylon. But now they have been invited by God and by the king to return and to rebuild the temple. And last week we saw that the first thing that they did before they began the construction project on the edifice of the temple was actually that they restored the altar. After they had gotten their bags unpacked, their camels unbound or whatever they had done, kind of got their households halfway in order, they returned to Jerusalem, it says, as one man, as one people and unity. And the first thing they did was they restored the altar of God. Ezra 3.3 3 really gives us this the summary, this picture of where we were last week. So they set up the altar on its foundation, for they were terrified because of the peoples of the land, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening, and then it goes on to say, and they reinstituted the festival of booths, I believe it was, and they began to do all the things that were prescribed for the people of God and the worship. And man, it was a great thing. And they feasted and they celebrated. And then the next thing we see there in chapter 3 is they take up a big offering. I mean, that's what church is all about, right? Come together, come to the altar, have a feast, and take up a big offering. All right. But last week, my main objective was this. Was to establish that the Old Testament altar of the Lord for us, is equivalent to worshiping the Lord. That that's primarily, when it says the altar of the Lord, that I think that we should be thinking about, we're talking about worship and the worship of God. All right, And so that's what we talked about. But really, is it that easy? I guess that's the question I begin to think about. Is, it, is, it, is that all it, there is to it? To reestablishing, rebuilding, and restoring the worship of Almighty God? Is it just about taking a rock or a box and putting it on a pedestal and then inviting people to come and doing some religious rituals. Is that it? Just abiding by prescribed things that they were supposed to do, following the recipe, if you will, is that all there is to restoring the worship of God? No. I'll tell you what, I've been stunned by this as I've stopped and just, you know, so you ought to, when you're reading the Bible, you ought to just go down those sanctified rabbit holes 
and just begin to think about what are we talking about here? And so as I'm, I'm rolling around in my heart and my life, and I feel like the Lord brought me to this point to say, you need to stop right here, thinking about worship. And I think that we need to spend some time here. I need to personally spend some time here. My, uh, my father-in-law, is he here today? Can I talk about him safely? Okay. My father-in-law recently bought my dad uh, his old 1970 GMC truck after my dad passed away. And he was, uh, you know, mom said, get this, going to sell dad's truck. And uh, so I told him about it. He, he was going to buy it and fix it up. And uh, I asked mom, said, you know what about the truck? And, and uh, she said, you know, I don't know. Last time it was driven, it was fine. But it had been a while. It had been a while, so they go down there, Isaac and, and Roger go down there to load the truck up on the trailer and it won't start. And so they pop the hood and, and they look and, well, there's some spark plugs missing. And so he goes, and I think the story I got was, put the spark plugs in and started kind of back tracing. And, well, there's, there's wires missing to those spark plugs and from the distributor. And so there was going to be no driving that truck on the trailer, so they get it towed. Uh, to Marshall, and, and uh, you know, kind of looking through all the things, and poured some gas in the carburetor, and it ran for a minute, but it wouldn't stay running, so, oh, man, got a, got, a, got a fuel problem going on here, and so the gas tank was corroded and rusted up and had holes in the sending unit that sends gas, you know, to the different places. It was totally messed up. And not only that, the exhaust system had some problems, bolts missing, and, and things were kind of bashed in, and and uh, so they begin to work on all that, replace the fuel tank, replace the sending unit. It does crank up, but man, it sounded really sick. I said, it sounded like a lawnmower. And, and all kinds of problems going on there. And I'm just like, man, whew, what, a, what a deal. And then, you know, once they finally get it running, it'll go, but it won't stop. There's, there's no brakes. There's no brakes, and so that's a whole nother system, and so they're kind of dealing with that, and then, and then they're going to pull it out of the barn, and uh, it wouldn't go into gear. It had went into gear before to get it in the barn, but it would not go into gear, so the transmission, there's no fluid in the transmissions, and all kinds of things, and I was just thinking about, man, I don't know if I should tell this, because if Roger's here, he's probably trying to sell it to someone out in the foyer, so, so luckily he's not here, so none of you have been approached about buying this thing, but if you are, when he shows up, it's a, it's a good fixer-upper. It really, it really is. You know, the thing about the truck is its exterior is actually very nice. It's really straight, very little rust, even it's got a nice recovered seat. And, uh, you know, my idea of the deal, I was like, man, I mean, we're going to fix this truck up. We're fixing to slap a little paint on this thing, maybe a little, you know, candy apple red. Or, or I've got in mind this color, it's called uh, tangerine. I was like, sweet. And some new wheels. And, and then... And then I'm going to be cruising around in Dad's old 70 truck. It's going to be fixed up. <laughs> no. No. The problems are much, much deeper. They go way beyond the superficial. Every system is malfunctioning in that truck. And I'll tell you, as we approach the subject of rebuilding the altar, restoring worship, and especially as we're thinking about it, in our day, in our time, I think that what I've realized is that we're not talking about superficial issues, tweaking knobs and doing little bitty things. The Bible's diagnostics or diagnosis of the problem of worship and where it went wrong is way, way deeper. 
than cosmetic issues. And so today's message, Rebuilding the Altar, part two, I don't know how many parts there are going to be to this, the little subtitle is Where Worship Went Wrong. You know, and it gets to that idea of diagnostics. And when you hear that title, Where Worship Went Wrong, you think, well, you know, I could, I could see as the way we conceive of worship in, in, in the 21st century. Yeah, I could think about some, some things that go wrong when we worship. And so usually what we think about is we think about Sunday morning disasters, disruptions, things like that, you know. I remember that, that Sunday that the power went out here. Boom! You know, and I lose my mic, and it's like, what do you do? That's, that's a mess up. Let's just say amen and get out of this place. And, uh, you know, you think about things like that. I think about mid-sermon. I may have told y'all this one time I was preaching, and I wasn't even probably to point number three, and this guy comes weeping down the altar, or down the aisle, and he comes here to the, uh, sorry, steps, not the altar, and he's just weeping, and I'm like, Dude, I still got one more point left. Could you? What do you do? I was like, when worship goes wrong, I was thinking about being in Kenya, Africa, and having this worship service. And this, I mean, it, and it was awesome. And and we're in this hut, I guess you will. And you know, there's no glass windows. There's just openings. And and there's you know no door. There's a doorway. So we're having worship, and there's stuff going on, and and all this. And then he, and I'm I'm right up here, and these dogs just come. Hanging out, you know, and they're doing their thing. And I'm like, that, that's when worship goes wrong. And then, and then someone comes up, a disturbed person to the window, and they just making a ruckus. And I'm like, you know. And so we focus on all kinds of things we think about when worship goes wrong being that kind of stuff. You know, we need different music, better music. We need whatever. We need better preaching for sure. We need, here's another, a big one. We need shorter preaching, right? And, and uh, I'm going to tell you, it ain't happening today. We need emotional invitations, or we need less emotion in worship. Some people would say we need liturgical things. You know, we we need all kinds of different responsive things. And 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 I would just say that I don't think those are the root issues from the biblical point of view. So where did worship go wrong? Let's get back to our story and think about where did worship go wrong for the Jews in Israel back in our story, or even before our story in Ezra. Chapter 3, and I think that what, as I was asking this question, well, how did they get to this point? You'll remember that God was the one who drove them out of the land. God was the one who sent Nebuchadnezzar to destroy the temple and the altar. That was God's doing. He sent them as his servants, if you will. Something had gone so wrong with worship that God said, I ain't having none of it. No, no. And so I think as we think about that, what went wrong, we think about, well, how can it be restored and be made right? And so I was searching through the Bible and thinking about passages, and I, and I came across Isaiah chapter 29, which I think is probably the most concise and poignant pinpoint of what went wrong in worship, such that God would say, no more. No more for a while. We've got to get out of this thing. Things are messed up before he brings about a restoration. And in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, the Lord said, These people, that's his people, they approach me with their speeches to honor me with their lip service, yet their hearts are far from me. And human rules direct their worship of me. 
So that's God saying, what went wrong? And he even gave that message before he brought about this total oblivion. He, he sent that message through Isaiah. He said, in other words, think about this. There's external conformity. They're doing the right things. They're saying the right things. They're following all the rules, but their heart is not with me. It's hypocrisy. It's a lie. Everything they're doing is a lie because their heart's not there. Their hearts are far from me. So worship is first and foremost, I think, about a right heart. What was wrong with their hearts? We need to ask that question. Well, what, what, what went wrong in their hearts? Isaiah 29, 16. Here's what it says. Here's what the Lord says to the people about their worship and where it went wrong. Through Isaiah, he says, you have turned things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? And what is made would say to its maker, he did not make me. Or what is formed, say to him who formed it, he doesn't understand what he's doing. In other words, when worship goes wrong and the heart's not in it, something has happened in the heart. Here's what Isaiah says has happened in the heart. Actually, God says it. He says, you have put God on your level. He's the potter, you're the clay. But you've said, you're just like one of us, God. And you've put yourself on the level of God. So the people had denied their state as a creature underneath the creator and said, God, you don't know what you're doing, so let me help you out. Let me help you out. You don't understand, God. That's what's happened in their heart. The wrong-headed conclusion, the foolish notion that we are as God and God is as us. Same conclusion that Adam and Eve came to in the garden where everything went wrong and they walked away from submitting to God as their maker and creator and decided they had a better plan than God and they followed foolish thinking, deceitful desires and worship went wrong. So it went wrong in the garden. It went wrong in the pre-exilic days such that God sent them out. And I thought about, you know, verse 13. That sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Verse 13, that, that their hearts are far from me. It sounds familiar to you probably because in Mark chapter 7, it's recorded that Jesus, as he's doing ministry with his disciples, he's going around and, and you know they've been eating some stuff and the Pharisees and the scribes of the Jews, they confront Jesus and his disciples about not keeping all of their cleanliness traditions that the elders had set up. That is their rules. He said, why are y'all not washing? And, and, and they had rules. You wash your hands, you wash the cups, you wash the pots, you do all of these things, the pitchers, the kettle, even the couches that you sit on. They made all of these religious requirements that were not in the scriptures and Jesus says this. He points back to Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied correctly about you, hypocrites. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines, human commands, abandoning the, com abandoning the commands of God for your traditions. So it was going on in Jesus' day. Even after Ezra and all of this, it happens again. They're making up rules and setting up external conformity to a bunch of religious rituals as the thing. And he says, and your hearts are far from me. You're not keeping the commands of God, but you're all about making people keep your commands. 
and doing things the way you want them done. And so we're beginning to zero in now on a pattern, something that's happening where worship goes horribly wrong over and over again. So it's wrong when it's empty ritual. Even if the activity is biblically defensible, when it's just an empty ritual and our heart is not in it, it is wrong-headed worship. It's wrong when we elevate our opinions and traditions to thus saith the Lord. And then when we do that, what we always have the tendency to do, they did it, is to become a religious people that's all about doing things my way, but we really don't care if people do things God's way. All right? And it's wrong worship when our heart is not submitted to the God that we claim to worship. So essentially, we remove God from his throne and we enthrone ourselves. And God wants no part of that. And what I want to do for the remainder of the time, so that's your sermon. Now the rest is going to be kind of your lecture, your teaching. And I want you to follow along with this. I really want you to be engaged. I hope you will be. Because here's what I want us to do now. I want us to say, is this, is this kind of a thing of the past? Or is this a, a big thing? Is this a thing for us today? And I'm going to argue from the book of Romans, chapter 1. You can put your finger there if you've got your Bibles. That this is the story of all of us. And what I want to do is explore this notion that worship gone wrong is the dethroning of God from our own hearts and it's the enthroning of ourselves. I want to explore the idea that the consequences of that are far greater than a, a, a worship service that just isn't exactly like we want it to be. The consequences are deadly and dire and damning. All right, And I want us to see that the gospel of Jesus Christ speaks in to this in a way maybe that we could never imagine. I want to invite you to stand up right now if you would because I knew this was going to be long. I thought, I thought we need to break this up just a little bit. All right, I'm not going to have you do anything crazy. This is serious now. I tell you, I, I really believe this is revolutionary stuff that we're about to look at. And I think you probably know a lot of this, but I, I think we need to see it again. And we're here to worship. We're here to meet with God. And I want to ask you, if you genuinely want to become and have restored in your own heart worship of God, I want to invite you, would you just bow with me right now? And we're going to have a, a prayer. And this comes directly from Psalm 139, so it's a great worship prayer as we enter into exploring this idea of worship. And if you genuinely want to meet with God in this place today, in your heart, would you just repeat this prayer? I'm going to go through it in parts from Psalm 139. You just repeat it either out loud or to yourself. But you're praying to God. And here it is. Repeat after me if this is your prayer. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written. The days that were ordained for me. 
Search me, O God. And know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. Amen. You may be seated. Romans chapter 1. And I would invite you to turn there. Because I'm going to be reading some verses from Romans chapter 1 now. If you would, go ahead and go to that next slide. I realize things are a little bit contorted here and you may not be able to see all of that. One of the benefits of sitting up close is I pull stunts like this, okay? And hopefully those of you who are close can see this better. But I don't know if you recognize this, but this is you. This is you. (laughs) This is a generalized human person. It doesn't say everything. It's not a perfect diagram. It snowed this week and so I was trapped in the house and so I built this snowman. Some of y'all built snowmen out of snow. But I I took seriously this thinking through about who we are as people. And this is, again, a generalized version of a human. But I want to show you some things, point out some things there about humans. And the first thing you'll notice is that humans have a spirit, or that's the heart. Right there in the center, the spirit or the heart. And then there's different aspects of our personhood or personality. First is our our, uh, intellect. You know, we think about our mind and our thinking. Over here, we've got the emotional aspect. It is our dispositions. We think about our desires, and maybe even our will fits best right there. Then at the bottom, you get the physical. We, we have a body, right? And, and we do physical things in this world. And then there's a social dimension then, and that's, of course, tied to the physical, but, but we think about we're able to interact with all of the world around us, especially in our relationships And one of the things about that diagram is there's kind of this sphere going around. And these things are not separate. They're all interconnected in all kinds of wonderful ways. God has made us in this way. And again, I realize it's not perfect, but that's how I want us to think about. And I think the Bible generally thinks about us as people, as having this, the spirit. Let's go to the next slide. But also having intellect, emotions, a physical body, and then a social dimension. And so God created us with that spirit of the heart. And God created us to walk with him. The spirit of a man or a woman is that part that communes with God. The Bible says that God is spirit. We have a spirit. And God's intent is that he, by his spirit, that he would be at the center of the communion of our lives. That we would worship. And I think that's getting things right, that we as creatures of the Creator have Him right at the center, recognizing that we are made by Him and for Him, to delight in Him. There's nothing greater than God, and so God knows that, and He puts Himself, the most beautiful, wonderful, and wise thing at the very center of our lives to hold everything together, God's Spirit communing with our spirit. I think that this is worship. This is a life that worships. God is at the center. And it touches on every aspect of our being. Let's go to the next slide. Now in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, we're thinking about worship going wrong. Now we're thinking not about so much our corporate worship. We're thinking about right here. We're thinking about in my person, in my heart, in my life. 
and the lives of people. And Romans 1 verses 18 and 19 says, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth about God in unrighteousness. Now, I want you to notice something here in this snowman, if you will, this generalized person, that something has happened in our intellect and in our minds, the truth. Truth is what corresponds or accords with what it really is, with reality. And all of a sudden, our minds suppress the truth. We don't acknowledge what really is. We conceive of things as maybe we wish they were, how someone else said they were, but not necessarily how they really are. And so we suppress the truth, and in that suppression of the truth, God no longer occupies the center of our lives with our spirit. And maybe we could start by saying we, we relegate God to some aspects of our life, but he is not at the center. And so I put God over here in the social dimension and the physical dimension. And I would say that's what happened before the exile. They were worshiping. They were coming together as God's people. And they were saying to each other the right things. They were doing some things. And they were happy to leave God there. But God was not at the center of their thinking. He certainly wasn't at the center of the communion of their spirits. And they did not love God. Their emotions, their desires, their longings, really God was not there. Romans 1, 18 and 19 says, listen, when people suppress the truth in all godlessness, Godlessness means God's not there. And so God begins to be vacated in the suppression of the truth from the human heart, from the spirit where he longs to dwell. And that's what's going on right here. It's the start of godlessness where God is just, he has a little bit to do with our religious activities, but he's not the center of our hearts. Verse 21 says, though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Gratitude happens over here in gladness. I think it could be a part of a physical thing. We give thanks to God. But when it says being grateful, we're talking about the emotions and the dispositions, how we feel about God. And so, worship has gone awry. Next slide, please. Verse 21, the last half of it anyway in Romans chapter 1 says, Instead, so instead of worshiping God as they should, as we were created to do, instead their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. So worthless thinking. Not now not just suppressing the truth, but our thinking becomes totally deranged and stupid and worthless. It doesn't lead us in any worthwhile pursuits and our hearts are darkened. Okay? That's what it says there. Their hearts were darkened. And so we don't feel the right things. We're not thinking right, clear thoughts that correspond with what really is, who we really are and who God really is. Degeneration of worship. Wrong thinking about God. And so I do think that we should think about this, first of all, from Romans chapter 1, that if we're going to restore worship, one thing we need to realize is part of where it went wrong to begin with is in our thinking. Wrong thinking. Thinking lies. Being deceived in our minds. You know, so worship should be, at some levels, fairly cognitive. We're trying to reach the mind. Because the mind, in wrong worship, is messed up. And it leads hearts astray. And it leads our spirit astray. And we do all kinds of things. It brings a darkness to our soul, if you will. So next slide. Verses 22 through 23 there in Romans chapter 1 says, so now it's a progression of what's happening. 
Okay? And this happens in the human heart, happens in society. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. So actually, not only is the heart darkened, I would say this, that there's a void where worship of God should be. This darkening, something's missing, and we feel it, we know it. One of the things I've been trying to defend is that we are worshipers. We're going to worship something, some things. So there becomes this void here. Now notice, God has moved out to the periphery. Maybe at this point, as people's thinking is not just darkened, or the truth suppressed, now they're just totally thinking foolish, that they can live life without the one who made them. The greatest reality that there is. And so God is now outside of that life. And there is this felt void as God has left. There is a worship void. The glorious God has been removed from our spirits and our hearts. Next slide. Verse 23 says, Now, next, they exchanged the glory of God for created things, for images. The glory of God is his radiance, his beauty, his shining, all that he is. The only thing that really is worthy of our worship and can sustain our worship for eternity. And now he's outside of us. And so there's that void, but it doesn't stay void very long. We start trying to feel things. And notice now the, the image is becoming contorted, out of shape. And so we, we find things, things we create, animals, other people. So Created things now try to fill the void where the creator belongs. And so we put all kinds of things there. We are idol factories. Our hearts are idol factories. Stuff we look at. Images. Idols, stuff we make and we ascribe value and worth to. That's what's going on here. We could call it. I think, idolatry or idol worship. Nobody here would think they're an idol worshiper. We think that's something that happens in the jungle or happened long ago. But in reality, we put all kinds of things at the center of our life and bow to it and ascribe worth and value to them. But in the end, they crumble because they're not glorious enough. It causes us to worship. You know, things that we put in the center of our lives, we're excited about them for a time, and then hmm, we get bored, and we put something else, and we put something else. But if you don't have the creator there, it's going to be some created thing. And so God is becoming smaller and further away, if you will. Let's go to the next slide, verse 24. It says, therefore, so when that happens, God delivers them over to the desires of their heart, to sexual impurity, and the degrading of their own bodies among themselves. We lose sight of God. We're, we're stuffing things into our hearts and spirits and trying to worship them. Nothing satisfies. And so then, our desires, we long for relationship and other people. Truly, what we need most is a relationship with God. But he's not there. We've kicked him out of our lives. And so we look for other people. We desire other people to feel that longing and satisfy us. And so that's something we desire. And, this is, and God gives them over to that. So he's saying, all right, try that. And we concoct all kinds of ways. Normal relationships don't work. 
And it says God gives them over to all kinds of sexual impurities. So people begin to experiment with sex as something to satisfy them, and it doesn't work. People can't fill that void, no matter how unique, how creative you get, how many escapades, no matter what you try. Sex is not enough to fill your heart and your life. But God gives them over to try those things. All right, next slide. Verse 25 and 6. And so they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served what's been created instead of the Creator. And for this reason, God delivers them over to disgraceful passions. Same thing. Now he's, God has given them over to this and they have become, people become slaves to their lust. Disgraceful passions burning with desires that cannot be satisfied. Though people look, God gives them over to those things. That's what the Bible says. And so keep in mind what we're trying to figure out here, here is we're worshiping people. I mean, we, we are worshipers. And when we don't worship God, what do we worship? Is this true? I'll tell you, when you read Romans 1, I would just say this. Written thousands of years ago, and you would have to be blind or under a rock somewhere and not very self-examining to say this is wrong. This is a society. This is the world trying to find something worthy of worship. Right here. This is what's going on. It's been going on forever. It's going on in our day. Do you see that? And we become slaves to lust and passion. Next slide. Verse 28. And because the worshiper, they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. Same thing. It, it, it's, just, it's just escalating. Continuing on in this cycle. Have you noticed something? God is giving them over. God's over here. Now he's not ceased to be on his throne, but he's not on the throne of this individual's life or a society that has kicked God out of the public square kick God out of our marriages, kick God out of the ways of conceiving of our gender and identity and all those kinds of things, here's what happens. And the mind has now become corrupt. That's what it says. There's been an escalation in the mind of people, or I should say a degradation. This cycle, because all of these things are interrelated, and people find themselves in all sorts of contortion and pain. The corrupt mind that's very far from God. Next verse. It's like just when you think it couldn't get worse. And being filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, wickedness, murder, quarrels, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, God-hating, arrogance, pride, boasting, disobedient to parents, unloving and unmerciful. I, I tell you, here's how I conceived of that. I said, you know, we have that social dimension. Society just basically falls apart because people have now become just given over to all sorts of ungodliness and unrighteousness because why? They kick God out of their hearts. 
And so God moves over here and says, try it your way. That's how I think Romans 1 describes it. God gives them over. See where it lands you. Folks, it lands us in a place where society is just almost unlivable. It's a mess. Absolute disaster. Breakdown when God is removed from the center of our lives. And so, you know, as we conceive of this idea of restoring worship, I think that we should think about it as far more, again, than, than tweaking and twisting a few knobs, maybe rearranging the order of our Sunday service. We're talking about a total degradation and disruption of human life and existence the way God intended it to be. This is at the center of the mess that we're in. It wasn't just the people back in the Old Testament. It wasn't just the Pharisees and scribes in Jesus' day. This is the human brokenness. And it's far more consequential than we ever imagined. And that, my friends, is not the order as God intended it to be. I think we find ourselves there. And we come to this point and we say with Paul in the book of Romans, oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? What a mess. What do we do? This is what we've created by kicking God out of our lives. What do we do? And he says, thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Next slide. Thanks be to God that he did not stay out here on the periphery. That he decided that we, that his world, that creation, each one of you and me are worthy of restoration and rebuilding. So a restoration project. What's lost is worship. It's the right relating to God. And he says, I need to rebuild that. And so God in the gospel comes into that contorted mess and begins to part the ways. And God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, gospel means good news. It's a message. And so you'll notice now, things are a little bit out of whack here. But I put the little arrow right there touching the mind. Even a corrupt mind. God comes to that mind that's totally out of whack and doesn't know where to turn. And in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ speaks good news into that mind. But not just into the mind. It touches over on this little black heart or emotions and dispositions that are full of all kinds of wicked desires. Into the seat of our emotions. And now listen to this. And in Jesus Christ, he says, I love you with an everlasting love, a real love. I want to have mercy on your soul. He speaks a message of love to the mind, to the emotions, touches over also on the physical. And we'll get to some of this, but I just want to say to you that we need to see the gospel and the truth, and the gospel is far more than some little 30-second snippet about what Jesus did. It's massive. In fact, the book of Romans is basically an, an explanation of the gospel and its profound significance in every life. So there is so, so much that we could say. But when we come together to worship, and as we worship individually, I think that one of the things we need to understand is that there is a message. There are truths that need to come into our minds but they don't just stay in our minds. They also need to reach our hearts. The mercy and the love of God. And it doesn't just touch the, the 
intangible or immaterial dimensions of our life, that the gospel reaches into what we do as physical people and also into our, our relationships. Good news. God is rebuilding and restoring. You people are far more valuable than a 1970 GMC truck. Next slide. Last slide. Can I get an amen on that? In the gospel, we're promised that the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God actually comes into our hearts, back where He belonged in the first place. And God is doing this restoration project. And this is a picture of the finished product. What God is doing in salvation. All right? And it touches on every dimension, as I've already said. I read this verse, or these verses last week. I'll read them again. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Here's what God is doing and how the gospel reaches us. Therefore, brethren, in view of God's mercies, that is the gospel, the good news, in view of God's mercies to you, Offer your bodies a a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can discern what is the will of God, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let's look at this for just a second and think about it. This is what God is doing in restoring worship. He's renewing our minds Minds that were corrupted, minds that were suppressing the truth. And he wants to, and he continually brings truth into our minds. And we need to hear the truth, we need to know the truth, we need to repeat the truth. We're going to get into the practical aspects of this in the next week or two. This is fairly conceptual, but the renewal of our minds is central to the restoration. It's like the motor of that old truck. So he's renewing our minds, our intellectual capacities with the truths of Christ. And then over here in our emotions, reordered affections and dispositions, what we love, our desires, God wants to fix those. Remember, they were broken. All sorts of ungodly and unrighteous lusts and desires were controlling the people who did not worship God. But he says, you know, I want to fix those loves in you and your affections. And I'll tell you, I'm reading a book right now. I don't want to go into it, but it's about emotional discipleship. It's about the fact, and I think we often hide this part of our lives and say God doesn't really care. All he wants us to do is suppress and to stuff our emotions, and I think that's wrong. He wants to reorder our our dispositions and our loves and our desires through the gospel and through worship. The next thing, with our physical bodies, and really gratitude, I said, could have gone in either place, but I think there's something too giving thanks to God. We are commanded as God's people. Part of worship is having gratitude. It's so easy to forget all of God's good gifts and become whiners and gripers and then we know more than God. But with our physical mouths, I think that we need to practice this. And so he's restoring gratitude in our disposition or emotions, but also on our lips and giving glory to God. And there's all kinds of ways we can glorify God with our bodies. We talked a little bit about that last week. We'll talk again in a a week to come. And then there is the restored relationships in the social dimension of our lives. God has something to say through the gospel about how we interact with our kids, with our parents with our neighbors, with our fellow church members, with people who disagree with us. God wants to restore relationships. So man, it would be so nice if when you got saved, 
done. <laughs> the fact is, when you get saved, that's when you open the door of your heart, your spirit, your life, and a transaction occurs, just like happened with my father-in-law and that truck. Here's payment. Okay, here's keys. And here's the title. And here's the truck. God paid the price through Jesus Christ, his son. He sent him to die, to pay the penalty, to pay every debt that we had so that we would not be condemned. He's paid, or he's offering payment. And we have to open the door. But the fact is, when that transaction took place with that truck, the truck wasn't instantly restored. And neither will we be instantly restored. This is a process. This is a project. You're a project. I'm a project that God has taken on to restore. And this is what it's going to look like when it's over. Perfectly restored mind, will and emotions and disposition, bodies. I didn't even get into the fact of our bodies being restored and redeemed for eternity. We'll have eternal life. And God will be at the very center of all that we are. This is what it looks like. And I just want to say this, that worshiping God does these things. So, so when we come together, and we'll talk about corporate worship in weeks to come, corporate worship is where we get together and God does something in our midst amongst His people, using His people to do this. But worship doesn't just occur here. It's an all-of-life venture. And so I would just invite you to think about, in light of these principles and truths, what should then our corporate worship look like if this is what it's about? It's about God being at the very center. It's about the renewed mind. It's about the renewed affections and loves of the heart. It's about even becoming whole physically and it's about right relationships. Let me just prove to you that this is true. Greatest command. What does God want from you? What's it all about? Love the Lord your God with all your what? All your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. In that little diagram, you will find those truths contained. That's what God cares about. And the only way that can be a reality is that he occupies the center, the blazing center, which is your heart, it's your spirit. That's what it's all about. Whew. Restoring worship's a bigger job than I thought. And I'll tell you, I've been in a broken place this week, just personally thinking about where my systems are malfunctioning and misfiring. And letting God put his diagnosis on places in my life that are totally screwed up, pardon the French, and saying, I want to restore that. That's a part to make this thing run, and you've not been giving it to me. All right, Lord, I see it. I see the need for restoration in every part of my life. That's what worship is really about. Would you bow with me today? Lord, our prayer together 
was to acknowledge that you created us with longings, desires, minds to think, bodies to act, relationships. And you gave us this heart, this spirit that really we are largely unaware of at oftentimes. And we've stuffed that full of other stuff. But Lord, you've made us in a fearful and wonderful way. You've not given up on us. And my prayer today, for each of us and for myself, God, is that you would open the eyes of our hearts, open our minds and our wills to you. And God, that you would search us indeed. That your word and these truths that have gone out today would wedge their way down into the hidden crevices of our lives. And God, that you would do that and search us and show us any unrighteous thing, any place in our spirit that we have not given over to you. We submit to you those areas, Lord. As you show them to us, help us to take this seriously and to give ourselves to you completely that you might restore us holistically. God, that's our prayer. A prayer of submission. A prayer of searching. And we ask, Lord, that you would restore us into the image of Christ. Lord, do that work that only you can do. Only your spirit at work with our spirit can do. We pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, listen, I promise no, uh, well, I shouldn't promise no PowerPoints or snowmen next week, okay? Probably won't be this long next week. For, forgive me, but I'll tell you, I just, this is right at the core of everything. And if we don't get this right, we're stalled in the garage. Ain't nothing happening. If we don't get this right, we've missed it all. We can slap a new coat on it. We can wax it up. We can put all sorts of bling on our lives and what we call worship. But if it is not in the heart, it is not worship. You know what God wants? He wants you. He wants to restore you. And my prayer for you is what I prayed. Give yourself to him. If I can be of assistance to you in any way, meet with you if you have something you're going through. You know, sometimes we just need people to tell and to give us a little bit of outside light. You call me anytime. Be happy to meet with you. But commit yourself to this. Let your heart be restored by God himself. All right? So stand with me. Hey, Johnny Rex, would you close us in prayer today? Would you mind doing that?